Thank you very much. And, and hello, everyone, and welcome to the talk. Thank you very much for having me here. And uh, this is a research project that I'm working with the King's College London. I'm trying to conceptualize the conflict, the contemporary conflict in Somalia. And uh, And this presentation is today is more historical, and, uh, and it starts with the 1980s in the and, and, and 1990s in the early 1990s during the peak of the conflict in Somalia when the conflict became more. And uh, but I would be able during the discussion and question and answers to answer questions about Al Shabaab contemporary conflict in Somalia. And let me start the uh, the armed conflicts waged on clan tribal or ethnic bases have been recurrent features on the African continent over the years. Preoccupation with one aspect of violence has resulted in an incomplete picture since it obscures the other forms of violence. In a famous study in 2001, Nicholas Sambanis curiously inquired, quote, do ethnic and non-ethnic civil wars have the same causes, unquote. Without engaging directly with Sambanis two years later in 2003, Status Calipas, who was here last week, provided answers to the phenomena and, and came to the conclusion that political violence is not as, as the same as personal violence or any other violence for that matter. So exploring the case of the military regime of General Mohammed Siad Barre in Somalia from 1969 to 1991 reveals that both Calipas and his theories do hold much potential analysis for the Somali case. Political violence carried out in the name of clan but instigated by state authorities, was part of the everyday politics in Somalia during the military regime. But how to capture the two different dynamics and negotiate within everyday realities has been a challenge to scholars studying the conflict in Somalia. For many years, this phenomenon has perplexed, even if not baffled, political scientists and bandits and, uh, and those who are trying to study Somali society and state and both theoreticians and practitioners. This mainly because and, uh, this, and, uh, the violence unleashed by the Seattle regime over open civilians during its reign, and the clan convulsions that followed it after 1991, is thrown within the same intersecting lines of what Akil Gupta calls plural boundaries. Violence, whether orchestrated by the state or initiated by non-state or extra-state actors, is conceived as singular in, in Somalia as such. Are the two cases related? Observers on the Somali case insist the affirmative. So, but however, violence is not as simple as, as it seems on the surface, but rather a more complicated case. A closer examination, one that draws from the context on the fieldwork, shows that the politics of the political violence in Somalia lies in the clear underlying dichotomy of both cases. It is often difficult to dissect the difference between violence carried out by the state authorities and one conducted by a clan or even a sub-clan, failing to distinguish between the two. Many scholars conceptualizing the state violence as a clan war or clan wars, which a priori obscures the, the, the critical conflicts and the conundrums in Somalia, would be both two conceptual challenges. One, distinguishing the state violence from the societal violence. Second, recognizing the former from the other. Overlooking the structural and institutional approach to the violence, Scholars who have looked at the Somali conflict paid scant attention to how the Siadber regime shaped and transformed 
the traditional warrior tendency of Somali clans, historically. Clan violence is only possible when the state fails to be a neutral actor, becomes part of the violence or completely collapses as has happened in 1991 Somalia. And when related to the reality on the ground, that is when animosity between clans is ignited. It leads to an unending everyday violence. As a result, the vicious violences may have been averted had the military regime employed different means other than violence to deal with the dissenting clans from the first place. New ways of reconceptualizing African armed conflicts are indeed necessary to capture the nuances of what's going on or has gone wrong in Africa since the post-colonial period. James Ferguson calls for the need to advance in new conceptual categories and employ new methodological tools in African studies, famously appealing in their classic Africa works to the urgent need of rethinking African politics. Patrick Jabal and Jean Pascal Dolos found the two types of armed conflict in contemporary Africa. That is the political and the criminal. The former is portrayed as straightforward struggle for power, which are considered legitimate by a significant proportion of the populations, while the latter is painted not politically legitimate out of the outcome of the private greed of the war makers. The limitations of the academic exercise of Africa works aside, the Somali context demonstrates that this premise was not always the case in Africa. If one is to take seriously about Anthony Giddens' appeal to Mono, case study on how state violence and clan violence intersected, then the example of Somalia is both useful and instructive. How one can apart the two polarized binary violences remains a powerfully oxymoronic, despite the fact that clan conflicts have never morphed into massive clan compulsions until the fall of the state in 1991 <coughs> in Somalia. These important aspects raise two sets of questions. Does state violence have a distinctive character, more or less infeasible than societal violence, in this case, clan conflicts? If so, what, is, what it should be? What are the characteristics, characteristics, the causes, and the consequences of these symbiotic wars? Let us try to locate these answers in the Somali conflict. Somali society, especially for those adherent to the pastoral lifestyle, have had a history of intra- and interwars throughout the ages. Early colonial ethnographers, both British and Italian, German, reported with much swaying ways of a culture of violence in the pre-colonial Somali society. However, the contemporary ongoing conflicts began on 21 October 1969, when the military regime came to power with the platform of a bloodless coup d'etat. Upon the coup, Somali politics become violence, same as violence become politics before the post-colonial in the 1960s, Somalia was born as a democratic state from the UN trusteeship in 1960. But after the military regime, this was in, uh, the politics, when the politics become violence, it was intensified as the, as the military regime fought the disastrous 1977 war with Mengistu Haile Mariam's Dirki regime in neighboring Ethiopia. And uh, this war is uh, now an internationally Ogaden war, and it was part of the Cold War dynamics in the 1970s. From there upon, there emerged a series of political determinants and dynamics played through a state-structured violence. Because the military regime was not as powerful as it was in the 1977 war, the military authorities began to conceal their weaknesses with brutality against any individual or clan who questioned or posed a challenge to the illegitimacy of the military regime. State violence has been sanctioned ever since as a way to subdue the dissenting groups trying to topple the regime, using the traditional clan system to anchor themselves within the socio-political framework of the role 
the military authorities began to roll with the similar methods through which colonial authorities have ruled. That is ruling by subjugation. The politicization, not to mention economization, as well as the institutionalization of colonial violence become a reality. The place to begin exploring the state violence is the political givenness and granted clan notions that normalize the state violence. The state orchestrated colonized wars wherein the military regime wanted to boost on 1991 were fought along clan lines rather than exposing ideological lines renders the conflict very complex and complicated. Kalana bills were useful and served as easy-made tools in political contestations of a power, so much so that violence was justified under any level it reached. The strong clenching bond of protection and societal security ensured that both the victim and the perpetrator should possess the same right. The clan affiliation united the rivalists and the loyalists of the regime from both sides of the fence. One is the military regime collapsing, reversing realities to put in, uh, the position of the defender would change the atrocities and actions committed by the regime, destroying whole communities and clans did not exist and had not occurred outside the state perimeters, a fact noted by the participants in armed conflict and observers alike. So explaining the political trajectory of violence has proved challenging even for ethnographers who saw the colonized wars firsthand in the 1990s. This does not mean that the conflicts were new to the Somali horizon, but it was a factual reality well before the coming of colonialism. In both Siadbara and Somali, colonists began to return to a pre-colonial mode of violent, violent revenge. War and violence are not always as political as they appear. Armed conflicts become political when politics were involved in the process of war. Violence lost the connotation of political in March 1991 as both the two Siadbar leaders, Ali Mahdi Mohammed and General Mohammed Farah Aidid, and lost the war over who should have ruled Somalia after the military regime. Since state-making is always a war-making, as Tilly has conceptualized long ago, in Somalia war-making becomes state-making. From 1991 onwards, the state-making wars shifted from political violence to economic violence. A political war in Tarabunawaris began to compete for capturing airports, seaports, but not for the presidential palace, as accurate from the outset. Comparing and contrasting thir and, uh, 13 cases across the continents, Michael Ross has shown ways in which natural resources made impact and influence civil wars. In the Somali case, the natural resources were more an incentive to sustain rather than to embark on war. This was mainly because Somali possessed no oil, copper, or diamond, as were evident in Angola, Liberia, and Sierra Leone. In Somali, only the state became the major resource asset. In the real of the state, whoever captured its power would have captured its capital. As one an American diplomat, one is famously declared in 1990s, quote, the attitude towards the state itself is one of blunder, so it remains a great treasure chest in which you can grab at everything. That is the way um, the military regime have run the country through their clans, unquote. Who is ruling the state rather than what type of role is still the most important question in contemporary political conflict in Somalia. Even when the military regime was ousted, the institutions and state structures they put in place are to be sought from time to time. This explains why the notorious state intelligence agents, known as the NSS, the National Security Service, was reinstated in contemporary Mogadishu at the moment. 
the concept of the state in the minds of the Somalis has always been predated as it's contemplated with capital S. The state is the magic as it possessed and behaved in a predated manner in the past. The observation by Uzi Rabi on tribal societies that the state is not a political actor but a political field is irrelevant in the Somali case. The Somali state and the clan are part of the same story, part of the same political dynamics. Soon upon his ascent, the military strong ruler Siad Barre began separating the clans who would support from those who would resist his regime. Those clans who were beneficiaries of the ousted post-colonial civilian administrations in the 1960s were put into the enemy clan category, while the clans such as his who felt marginalized under the 1960s political configuration were welcomed on board. So some clans were kept out and others were kept in soon after the 1969 coup. With such a state-driven clannish reconfig reconfiguration of state power, Siad Barre promoted his clan, not just clan, but sub-sub-clan from clan family to a political family. In the days of the Somalis, this was a government for the family by the family. After the death sentences to silence the dissenting views, the state became a, a, a tissue where the main ruler would distribute to, uh, a tea to some clans and deny even a uh, small tea to others. Apart from the imposition of a rule revolving around clan groups, lowering down immediate clan, Siad Barre formed around his circle a small group of state-linked elites from certain clans sharing the national cake as part of uh, the politics of the belly, and, uh, using the uh, Jim Fonsoa Bayard's concept. With a proper and uh, Bayardian extraversion dividends, the idea that as long as the international aid was secured, the regime could sustain. The backbone and the base of the regime were founded upon the formation and establishment of autocratic institutions controlled by his immediate family members and in-laws. This meant that where he caught the big fish for himself, he reserved the middle fish for his family and the rest for his subclan. The other small fish were allocated to the allied elites from certain subclans or subclans. As a consequence, it's because of the presence <coughs> of one single dominant clan that encouraged disgruntled political groups to push their clans to, re to revolt. The military regime benefited from absolute impunity and the main leader became a gatekeeper ruler between the West and the East, the Soviets and the United States, aligned the first eight years with the Soviets, the rest with the United States and the other Western states. It should be noted that the years the military regime allied with the U.S. was the worst years of state violence. Some <coughs> Somali political officers confirmed to the American authorities in Mogadishu that U.S. military equipment was used by their forces to suppress civilian uprisings throughout the 1980s. In order to oppress the insurgents against his regime, and, uh, the Siad Barre launched state terror campaigns against the revolted clans. Resistance campaigns to the regime spearheaded by different political groups were framed as clan struggles intent on seizing the state from another clan sultanate. Wars over power was also framed in clanistic terms even when the state violence was transformed into a societal violence. But any attempt to shift from the seats of the state to the seats of the society was staved off to be hazardously devastating adventure. The state-sponsored colonized wars that engulfed the country in early 1991 was something that had long been imagined on one way or the other. When the military regime was finally overthrown in 1991, the predictable consequence of the enduring dictatorship culminated in a clan-on-a-clan -clan violence 
In other words, the state violence delegated the violence to Kalam. For the Kalam violence was an outsourced regime strategy before 1990 to suppress the dissenting Kalams. The, the transformative part of the societal violence was carried out on Kalambis throughout the 1990s, something that was not dissimilar from pre-colonial Somalia. To be sure, this was a decade of, of devastation in Africa. From Jad to Sudan, nearly each African country had been affected by a wildfire of wars. Somalia shared the other African than uh, war-ridden African states with the experience of going through one conflict after conflict in such transition of the 1990s post dictatorships and post-Cold War conflicts. Though the Somali case was less violent than other conflicts. Even though the military regime acted as an all-inclusive state, it was in reality not a national state. This created a, lo a love by politics and hate by politics, as two special clan categories were formulated. To rephrase the friendly, the clan is on the center and the clan is of the periphery. Sean King, in his book Faces of the Enemy, argues that the enemy has often no one single face to be confronted. With the absence of such a recognized face, the military regime made civilians belonging to the armed groups as its enemy. Throughout the 1970s up to early 1990s, it was a government policy that in order to survive in a bull of dissenting armed movements, the regime had to beat the favorable clans, those who are aligned with the regime, against the enemy clans, those who are hostile to the regime. To counter the armed groups, the regime armed the favorable clans against the disfavored, which in turn set out to arm themselves, to fend themselves from the hostile regime and its supporters. By way of clear political delineation between foes and friends, the, the regime military officers were given orders to summarily exclude members of those clans who were opposed to the regime. This was a complete transformation of violence in the sense described by the human rights organizations. After sanctioning colonized wars, the Somali state, similar to the Reunion state, ceased to be an important element of power, but remained a significant point of contention. The intersection between the state and clan came to be based on one of dialectical relationships. The political exclusion asserted through repression pushed the political violence to set the stage for the clan convulsions of 1991 after the military regime's fall and flight. As long as exclusion was institutionalized during the reign, the elites from and allied with the military regime would take whatever the military ruler had allocated them, which meant assuming political positions without complaining, let alone opposing. Those who proved to be dissenting or tried to challenge the status quo had to endure the wrath of the regime. When one clan group denies the other the right to share with the state resource as well as the right to exist under a rule of exclusion and re-exclusion, the result as a logic of war using caliphs renders the societal violence as a strategy to resist the state violence. The alternative way that disgruntled political players tended to display their muscle was to go war front and attack the regime from outside, as was done by the first elements of the Somali Salvation Front, SSF, later the Somali Salvation Democratic Front, SSDF. Soon afterwards, many other armed opposition groups more powerful than the SSDF, elements who later joined the Siad regime, came to the fore. The most powerful of these armed groups was the Somali Salvation National Movement, SNM, in the north, which helped from another powerful front in the, in, in the south, the United Somali Congress, to topple the military regime. The formation of these military movements was later used as a means for political ends, rather than liberating 
those groups who felt oppressed and excluded from the power. The political and economic marginalization spawned serious grievances that came to clash with the greediness. The clash of grievance with greed led Somalia to the uncivil wars in the first place. However, two choices were open to the marginalized groups in Somalia were to accept the status quo or to resist the military regime that was oppressing them long before 1991. According to the Niccolo Machiavelli, armies waged two types of war to attain goals and gains. One is lounged primarily because of the expansionist idealists and other hidden ambitions of the ruler to expand and maintain his dominance over the population. The second one, the most detrimental, arguably, for region, um, is when an entire population fights against another, the typology of Hobbesian war all against all. Both types of war were what occurred during and post the military period, regime period. This means that from the perspective of conflict studies, the contemporary Somali armed conflicts have intersected both Trinitarian and non-Trinitarian means and measures in multiple ways. In the post-military regime, no clan commanded the most substantial forms of military machinery, such as fighter jets, as, as was the case in the, in, in, during the military regime. In the post, and because of the military regime's structural legacies, colonized wars were not conventional. Massacres on the base of clan constructs by the military regime degenerated into rafe, which precipitated their forced expulsion of Mogadishu, the capital. Indeed, the driving forces behind the explosive clan cataclysmists were an abuse of power, autocratic exploitation of steel resources, as well as the drive in enriching particular elites. The distinction of the state sponsored violence as a wholesale terror and the clan violence as a retail terror, developed by Noam Chomisky and Edward Herman, was too apt to the Somali conflict. On 26 September 1975, the French intelligence newsletter. Africa Confidential published a classified document signed by the military regime ruler in August of that year, ordering the banishment of certain groups in the central regions in Somalia. The document itself was not clear in the purpose of such undertaking, but it reveals that people in the capital were conscious of what would follow after the campaign of central regions. Quote, this is what Africa Confidential wrote in 1975. There are now rumors in Mogadishu that the town of other regions will follow. Opposition to the regime in Hargeisa district, former British Somaliland in the north, would boot next in line, but Hargeisa would be a much tougher nut to crack with many supporters of the military regime itself. Unquote. A decade later, in 1984, another intelligence report made this glooming picture. Quote, Somalia is now bitterly divided into clan lines, with each clan armed to the teeth, fending for itself. Unquote. This clearly indicates, indicates that what happened in 1991 was not a clan violence, but the continuation of a state violence. To put it differently, it was not a cause, but a consequence. A state-supported clan was encouraged to defend the regime from a societal supported clan. This explains why some refugees were targeted as played a crucial role and participated in the state-funded campaigns of annihilation against specific groups in Mogadishu in the capital and other areas. These refugees were from Ethiopia after the 1977 war, and the regime tried to implicate uh, them in the wars against those who resisted the regime. The reason why the violence moved from the capital city to the southern Somalia was in large because 
the military regime authorities had moved the state power to their clan bases after the fall. Indeed, the role of the state-sponsored violence should not be equated with clan-motivated reprisals occurring in both military regime Somalia. The political culture of the military regime and the various ways of violence cannot obscure the evident fact that there is a link between a cause such as a cold winter and a consequence such as increasing illness. As one Somali elder puts it, quote, if a car had a collision with another car, for whom is going to be responsible, unquote. The elder replied to the crucial question that the driver must be held accountable. Because the state policy are made and remade by the driver, it's a matter of determining factor considering how the driver would steer the wheel. There is no doubt that over two decades, the driver of that state was the military leaders who drove Somali to the wrong direction. Victims of state violence are often challenged with clan confrontations. Not only is it important but imperative to underline the distinction between systematically structural and symbolic violence carried out as a campaign of state terror. Which one is more detrimental and leave lasting consequence, the state violence and the clan violence? The state is always more advanced and more determined to win a war than this united clans who could hardly combine all the resources needed to wage annihilation campaign. As one interviewee observed, no clan had the capacity to conduct organized terror after 1991. Destruction on a massive scale could hardly be undertaken without the resources drawn from the state coverage. Only the state was capable of fulfilling such a colossal arduous activity. In other words, only the state has the means and the mechanism to unleash mass destruction on a proportional epic, as evidenced in Rwanda, Burundi, and even Yugoslavia and Germany. In this respect, the state-sponsored violence during the military regime in Somalia could not be matched with clan convulsions between rival clans in 1991. The result of the state violence proved that those clans oppressed under the military regime could not be convinced today to share power with those who oppressed them. Violence in Somalia has taken two forms in conclusion, one carried out on a state level and another on clan basis. The state violence and the clan or communal violence are not clearly differentiated and delineated in the existing academic literature. Differentiation between the two cases has not been tried. Even the finest study produced most recently by Link and Renly, which utilizes geographic information systems, GIS tools, and special statistical methods. From empirical observation, the state violence and the clan violence are different in scope and in extent. It's important to use a diachronic and synchronic evidence to negotiate the distinction between the two. Which one is more enduring? Either one can be real, as both could draw upon outside intervention, a phenomenon that warrants further research. In every way, the state terror is distinct from clan violence. During the military regime, the historicity of the political conflicts and political rivalries <coughs> created by the state were much more complicated than the way they have often been simplified. The military regime in Somalia was, in a way, a replica of what William Reno called it the shadow state with regards to Sierra Leone and Liberia. Whereas the state violence can be termed as one-sided violence, the societal violence falls into the category of what can be called the other violence, which is to say it has no term like state violence. The otherness of the state violence characterized here as a political violence 
and clan violence conceptualized as public violence for it is or societal violence for it is substeadness or non-statism has always been shorter and less lethal. The public violence occurred as a consequence of the brutal policies pursued by the state, as we can see in Somalia. As a result, any violence should be best this violence should best be conceptualized to the extent of the outcome, not the form of the conflict, as collective violence in clan convulsions was not simply clan war. So even though it's distinctive, both in methods and objectives, what separates the state violence from the societal violence is not merely the politics and poetics of power on the part of the state, but also the organization and the resource to conduct more detrimental destruction than anything else. Put it another way, whereas the perpetrators of the state violence is shaped by a rigid determination to ensure the monopoly of violence, the perpetrators of public violence are conscious of the fact that one day they would hand over their weapons of the state. The state violence and the societal violence has, also, has always been interwoven as one single variable. Unlike the state-sponsored one, the clan convulsions in the post-military regime in Somalia were not based on one single variable, but many conflicts with many actors, each having its own venerations. This resonates with what can be described as a war within a war, by the war behind the war. Clan conflicts are open-ended episodes. But when the state that exercised the predator role become part of the clan conflict, siding with the favorable clan against the disfavored, the war had to turn itself into colonized war. So into colonized outside of the state purview, the military regime introduced the, the state violence into the traditional Somali clan warrior system. In a comparative study looking at the global level, Rommel argued that political violence in other words, the state terror resulted in casualties four times more than the interstate and the uncivil wars. Aside from the political aspect, conflicts of resources, previously pasture and water, in, but contemporary over the state power in Somalia and economic resource, compounded with that, have long been and still is a central feature of the contemporary armed conflicts in Somalia. In retrospect, the Somali pastoral clans have long fought each other, but when the state apparatus that was supposed to be impartial become part of the colonized wars, the consequence culminated in the 1991 convulsions, acted on the constraints imposed on them by the state. Some clan militias fought against others on behalf of the regime, others defending the regime. This evidence contra contradicts that the armed conflicts in Africa are not a retreat from a modernity, as Ali Masru so forcefully argued. The Somali state, under the grip of the military regime, was not the security guarantee for a populated territory. Rather, it guaranteed the security of certain communities to the detriment of others. Between predatory and parasitic, while remaining oppressive and exploitative, it triggered clans to, set, to settle scores on each other. After the downfall of, of the 1991 flight of the regime, oppressing pastoralist clans, who were culturally more violent than agro-pastoral clans in the South, was like locking a cat in a small room and then beating it. Most certainly, the cat would fight back fiercely and ferociously. In the introduction to violence and belonging, Vigdis Projdu summons a very legitimate question on why the complicity of the state is absent in popular accounts of political violence. Underscoring the responsibility of the ruling political authorities, she presents her case by augmenting empirical evidence gathered from Turkana in Kenya. Her insights are useful for the Somali case. 
Similarly, the military regime in Somalia was characterized by unleashing terror using violence to inflict Gunthian fear as the method and means of political intimidation and manipulation to sustain power. No one can accurately estimate the toll of deaths perpetuated in the name of the state from 1969 up to 1991 during the, uh, during the uh, reign of the military regime. But it's nonetheless estimated that nearly 150,000 people were killed on the orders and supervision of the state authorities during the, that period. At least 100 people were either barged or killed every year from 1972 up to 1977, after which the war peaked. The number of people lost their lives after 1969 up to now is triple than the 300,000 died in the aftermath of the Sayyid Muhammad Abdullah Hassan rebellion in the 1920s during the Darwish Wars, like a group, an uh, armed group like Al Shabaab in the 1920s, who fought against the British colonial rule. Plus, hundreds killed in the campaign against them. The good contemporary news is that violence in Somalia comes to secondary in global data on security issues over the last two years, thanks in part to the decline of Al Shabaab Al Mujahideen, although they have been recently returning back to the fold. And thanks also to the renewed war fronts in other parts of the world. Though it remained on top for many years, Somalia was now replaced by Syria, South Sudan, Honduras, Venezuela, Swaziland, El Salvador, Afghanistan, and, uh, and South Africa even as most violent countries in the world. What is obvious in those countries are still the state violence, something that created and left an unprecedented level of violence in Somalia. That is it.